Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. After you finish listening, we would really appreciate if you'd give us a rating on iTunes and Google Play to help other listeners find our show. We are taking PR&D to the next level. Our program will now include more frequent podcasts, including interviews that challenge and inform. We're also bringing in more writers to cover the politics in everything. Please consider becoming a patron. Your support will help us improve, increase, and pay for the content you enjoy. You can find us on Patreon at Political R&D or link through our website at politicalrnd.ca. We hope you enjoy this premium content that will be available to subscribers only after May 30th. Now, let's get political. Welcome back to Political R&D. I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean, and today I have two guests with me, Emma May. Welcome, Emma. Hi, thanks for having me. And Roger Baker. Hi. The impetus was the gun law, the gun ban that just came down from the feds. And so I chose two individuals who have backgrounds in law. Emma? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So, I mean, at least Roger still practices, which is, <laughs> which is something that I don't do and I haven't done for about 10 years. Um, so I'm still a member of the law side of Alberta. I did practice for 10 years and I have some, you know, I, you know, I have some background in that, but lately my interests have waned more towards sort of comms and communication and political uh, strategy and thought around where things are going in terms of that. And then business, of course. So I have two of my own businesses that I run. Um, so that's kind of where I'm, I'm coming at things from now. So while my opinion is informed by my legal background, <laughs> uh, do not ask me a legal opinion. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Roger? Yeah, fair enough. If you're asking for any legal opinions, and I'm, I'm going to have to cut the call short and go do some research. Um, I am a practicing uh, insolvency and litigation lawyer. Uh, my background is actually in the oil and gas business. Um, unlike Emma, uh, law is my second career, not my first. And uh, I was previously the CEO of a junior natural gas company from 2005 to 2012. So my background and my approach to law is sort of informed um, by my business uh, standpoint. And then politically, I'm, I'm that uh, a crusty cynic that, uh, that looks at a jaundiced eye with, at every party. So I'm not very political. <laughs> and see, by not being very political, it's probably very political. <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dirty, dirty little secret is that my father was a party whip in a provincial government uh, in, a, in, a, um, in another province in a prior uh, so life. That's why it's hard to get rid of the bug. Uh, kind of, yeah. While I try not to have an opinion, and sometimes yeah. things just scream at me from the inside. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, especially now. So let's get on with our first topic, which was to me, a really interesting comparison between some bans that have happened in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I had chosen guns, lawn darts, leaded fuel, and asbestos. Mm -hmm. 
And what I found so interesting about these is that, and I, I believe in the agenda I originally put it, does one of these things not look like the others? And strangely, it was the absolute ban of lawn darts. This was the only one that was actually banned 100%, no resale, uh, get rid of them all. Mm -hmm. Guns, leaded fuel, and asbestos were only kind of partially banned. Yeah, well, people, you know, just don't have a uh, lawn darts association committed. <laughs> That's what they were missing was a lobby group. <laughs> Their passionate love of the game. I remember lawn darts fairly fondly. Uh, I also remember diving out of the way of them a couple of times because those things did poke into the ground pretty hard and pretty yeah. far. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were know. heavy. They were heavy. There was no lobby group, but... But there like, what is the, and, uh, and they suffered the consequences. <laughs> Hire your lobbyist people. And so what, I guess, looking at it from a legal perspective or an opinion perspective, but the lack of a total ban, how much does that infringe upon your rights? If it's not a total and complete ban. Uh, absolute well, silence lots of, lots of things that are banned like murder is banned right a certain actions are banned um you know uh hard drugs that can kill you are are banned right mm -hmm. so we, have, we do have bans on things um you know when you have when you're dealing with these items that are already in existence in society and people own them and people have a connection to them it's incredibly difficult to redraw rules around things like that, or you have to get a public buy-in and public consent to that, right? Mm -hmm. And and so that's something I think we can touch on later, which is, you know, where where people's heads are on on all of these things. But you know, I always think about like if if somebody invented the cigarette, you know, today. today. And, and brought the cigarette forward and said, you know, here is this uh, thing full of tobacco and nicotine and we're going to sell it in stores and you just, you know, smoke it and it's super addictive. And it really has no purpose other than to, you know, mainline nicotine into your system and damage your lungs. You know, there's no way we would, there's no way Alberta or, you know, Canada Health would license that. But we have not banned cigarettes. Um, you know, and, and when you think about it, along with, with guns, really, you know, what good are they for other than, you know, causing incredible lung damage? Uh, I don't know. So yeah, that people would, people would perceive that to be an infringement on their rights at this point in time, because they've already had something. So once something has something, it's very hard to take things away from them. Roger. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you've got, and you've got, shades of of bands i mean Am, emma brought up um murder which is um you know clearly a criminal offense but then in criminal offenses you've got uh two different uh branches of offenses there's the strict liability offenses and then offenses that have a element of intent now murder is the type of uh, crime that has an element of intent you know you'll you'll hear of people uh, getting moved down to manslaughter because they found no criminal intent. Right. Whereas um, a lot of crimes are strict liability offenses where it doesn't matter whether you've uh, intended to do this action or not. 
um, you've broken the law. A good example of that is riding the sea train without a pass. If you've ever spoken to anybody who has attempted to talk their way out of one of those things, uh, you'll, have, uh, you'll find that they've had very, very limited success. And that's because that's a strict liability offense. Did you have a pass? Yes or no. If no, and you're on the train, well, guess what? Here's your fine. Right. So, um, I don't know how that factors so much into the into the idea of of bans, but I certainly agree with Emma that people have some emotional attachment to their guns, maybe less so to their asbestos. I sure miss lawn darts. <laughs> right. um, I think I still have some asbestos here hidden in the walls uh, of the house, so, but I'm I'm not going to go disturbing it to make sure. Mm-hmm. With the grandfathering. Um, that seemed to bother a bunch of people as well. That if you currently owned one, you were allowed to maintain ownership. Of a lawn dart or a gun? Gun, yeah, not lawn darts. <laughs> lawn darts are really banned. Yeah, well, I mean, when, it, when we're actually, ta- I mean, the funny thing is, is when we're actually talking about the new laws that, that Trudeau's just brought in, um, they're really kind of technical. It's, it's a bit of a technical nothing burger. Um, when you actually look at it on the face. I'm, I'm actually pretty pro ban more of them. Um, I saw but, that recently on Twitter. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but, but realistically what he's done is he sort of added a few new things to a, to, to a list of already restricted weapons. So we actually do have relatively strong um, gun laws in Canada. Uh, but I do think what happens is we get the bleed over from the U S right. Mm-hmm. And so our media and our culture is saturated with news from the U.S. And yet we aren't the U.S. We do have a different culture. And so when we hear about things like, you know, banning semi-automatic weapons, well, there are, those things are already pretty much restricted weapons in Canada anyway. We've just added some new things to the list. Um, so, you know, right now what's happening is you've got conservatives on the one side saying, you know, this is a nothing burger. You added these things to the list. You didn't do the consultation properly and you've taken steps that are outside of sort of the boundaries of how it is that we now go about having these discussions. And you've used, uh, you know, you've used the power that has been granted to you in the middle of this pandemic to sort of do this, do this thing. The flip side of that is I think what's happened is it's actually demonstrated that Trudeau might actually have more um, breadth within his ability to, to do more than what he just did. Because I don't think, I think what's happened in our culture and our society is a move towards more urbanization and uh, the, the psychological bleed off of sort of the mass shootings in the U.S. have led to some, a place where you've got 80% of the Canadian population saying, yeah, we we're okay with more and more restrictions on these things and more and more bans on these things. And so while I don't think technically he's done much with this this actual new set of, you know, rules that he's brought in, I think it's actually demonstrated that he's got more room to go. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that sort of leads to um, maybe a little bit of a diversion here, but into the idea of the return of big government. And I think that um, that's sort of the silent uh, news story underneath everything in COVID as I mean, you know, so many people now are, are experiencing, um, 
government welfare for the very first time, you know, whether it's through uh, the Canadian emergency wage supplement, or if you're a restaurateur, boy, you're probably pretty desperate for the, uh, the rent assistance program, uh, or, you know, large companies even um, looking at mass layoffs and, and punting that liability onto the uh, Canadian emergency benefit uh, program. So you've got, you've got government doing huge, huge steps, which I mean, is such a counter trend to the way things were headed in, in the nineties and the early two thousands, where it was, you know, get the government out of the way, give us a military and give us the things that we can't provide on our own. Yeah, you're right. There has been this huge sort of shift. What we've seen is it doesn't matter which government to, uh, because conservative governments are also taking this opportunity to, to seize power back as we've seen in Alberta with the passing of bill 10, which basically gives like, you know, Kenny unilateral discretion to make laws at a ministerial level or, you know, by ordering council. So he can just go and do pretty much whatever he wants now uh, under the guise of this. So it's not even something, so this push that Roger is alluding to isn't even something that's necessarily limited to um, one 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 side of the ideological spectrum. Everybody's right now grasping for that which uh, has eluded them before. Do you think as well, um, I mean, we often talk about how uh, there is a political will available or also an opportunity. And when when Trudeau quickly banned additional guns, to me, I looked at that and said, well, uh, someone sent me a message and I said, blame New Zealand because the amount of positive response that mm-hmm. Jacinda uh, Aldern, yeah, when the, yeah, the amount of positive response that she received was enough, I think, to push, you know, to, to make that uh, viable for the Liberal government to act quickly, move swiftly, uh, look like they're doing something. Yeah, and I think you tie that in with, you know, the images the week before of, um, of you know, uh, freedom-loving NRA advocates storming, you know, the Michigan um, Senate and standing and with their guns hanging over them. And you know, there, there is this visceral reaction that sort of happens when, when people see that. And yeah, what, was there an opportunistic element to that? Uh, yeah, probably. Absolutely. Yeah, probably. Uh, it, I mean, this is something that was actually in his platform. So I'm not going to say like, brought, he, he brought it out of nowhere. Right. Um, you know, but yes, this is a time right now where governments like, like Roger said, are, have the ability to exercise some power grabs that we probably aren't wouldn't see in regular times like usually this would be something that especially when you've got a minority government would be more debated right Right. what's that phrase in the communications world emma never waste a crisis yeah exactly (laughs) yeah Yeah. so so that's i mean that's that is where we are where we're at and i think you know judging from where people are at on this. I, I think it's, if you think about it as a test, right? These are sort of policy tests. They're seeing how far they can go with these things and seeing what the public response is. And um, so far, I think he's on the winning side of the public response here. Yeah, overwhelmingly, it seems. 
which I which also makes a difference, right? Um, you see, you see certain policies kind of floated with. Uh, it could be it could be social media, it could be uh, intentional leaks, but mm-hmm. you know they they tend to float out the possibility of change or uh, yeah. doing something and, and see how it goes. Like yeah. the foreshadowing of a PST in Alberta that we've been hearing for the last <laughs> two or three years. Right. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's actually a, an interesting side as well, because do you think Jason Kenney and comparing it like as, as he was doing, because he kept you know, bringing up Ralph Klein and he, he's the second coming of Ralph Klein, uh, which is just so many levels of wrong. But the one thing that I did find with Klein is that he had a lot of support for, uh, for taking those strong measures that he did for, for increasing taxes to pay down the debt he had buy-in, right? I mean, if you look, if you look in almost any, yeah, any of the archives. Mine also worked, like walked stuff back, right? Like, I mean, when we talked, when you talked about that idea of like test policy too, mm-hmm. right? like Klein was also one of the first guys who would say, meh, maybe I won't do that. <laughs> we're going to back, we're going to back away from that. That was not such a great idea. Maybe I was wrong. He actually didn't have, he, he was, he was much more of a, well, popul- populist, but also a pragmatist, yeah. right? Um, and I think that's a difference. That's I think that's the fundamental difference here between Kenny and Klein is that Kenny is not a. I do not believe he's a pragmatist. I think he's an ideologically um, structured guy, and so I'm not sure how much he's got sort of that flexibility. And if you don't mm-hmm. demonstrate that flexibility, I don't think you get the consent later on. Right, I would agree with that, Roger. <laughs> I don't think there's a ton of room for uh, ideology in the COVID-19 world. I mean, we've all got to do what we've got to do. I mean, if you, one of the first articles that, that came out that caught my attention um, back in March, um, and I really don't recall which publication, but they used the phrase, uh, Trudeau has decided that the enemy is insolvency. And I couldn't agree more because I mean, if, uh, if my office gets really busy uh, taking companies uh, out of existence and collecting loans that can't be paid and can't be collected, you know, that is just going to change um, not only Alberta, but I mean, Canada uh, irrevocably for uh, years to come. So um, absolutely, you know, you want to, you want to. You want to throw your ideology into the waste bin for the moment, hold your nose and do what's right. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much we've seen Kenny do that. I think what he's, I think what he's managed to do so far is maintain a bit of a, a bit of his ideological bent on this and push it back to the feds so that he's oh, not, yeah. so that he's not the one that's actually doing these things. Right. So he can always say that he didn't do them because I think it's an uncomfortable place for him. I don't think he, he does not want to be the guy who's going to have to bring in a PST. Like I think that just horrifies I think it horrifies his base nature coming from like the Canadian taxpayers federation background, right? Like that is not his thing. Um, But like Roger said, we're at a time now where ideology really sort of doesn't matter. 
and that it's really about what are we going to do to get us through this and through to the other side with the least amount of economic fallout as possible. That's, that's funny because when they launched that, um, that expert panel last year to look at um, our spending and said there'll be another panel to look at revenue in a few years, I immediately read that as, okay, PST in a few years, you know, it's in the plan for two years down the road, but we're going to ignore it for right now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I read it as that, but I mean, the one thing we do know is Jack Mintz, who is Kenny's favorite economist, um, is actually supportive of, uh, of a PST or an HST style structure. Um, but it is, I think it, within his plan, it's incumbent on, on reducing income tax. And that's actually something that I'm super interested in. I think that's actually, I mean, I'd be all over that. I think you actually could create a, yet another sort of Alberta economic advantage if you, if you actually moved in that direction and had an income tax reduction, but brought in a PST so you could actually tax all the tourists that come into this mm-hmm. problem any spending that happens here pardon me what tourists well <laughs> we used to have tourists uh yeah no I, I i completely understand the logic there i mean when do we get our tourists back well ba- apparently the fairmont and all those guys are starting to open I, uh, although the tourists now are i mean are they are they, they going to be canadian tourists and when do we open the uh, i think i think it was marcella monroe do you know marcella she tweeted the other day someone was like uh who was it it was, um, someone was like, when are we going to open the border to the U S and she was like, I think sometime after the second Tuesday in November sounds like a great time. <laughs> <laughs> See how they vote. Yeah. Not sure who had tweeted this out. I believe it was someone from the globe and mail and they were saying that New Zealand and Australia are looking for, or sorry, looking to kind of create a, a bubble travel Right. Yeah, where they can visit each other's countries without having to self-isolate and how that might make it, you know, be be something that other neighboring countries can look at. And he had a picture of, you know, Canada kind of, um, and it was the little, I think it was the little, whatever that animal is from Ice Age, the really sketchy one that's always the, yeah, it just had him with everybody being like, no, no, do not open our borders. Um, Because we're really going to have to be vigilant and see what is going on in the States before we consider opening up our borders. I mean, even, even provincially, right? Like you have, you have BC that seems to really be on the down curve, but Saskatchewan had a bit of a boost and Alberta is, we don't well, know what's going on in Alberta. We have our work sites that screw us up. Yeah. Um, when we talk about all of this stuff, it's, I mean, we're in this weird zone of free, you know, what is, what is freedom now? Right. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about things like gun bans or, you know, I mean, let's think right now we're in a travel ban right now. We're in a actual stay in your fucking house ban. Right. Yeah. We're in a, we, our, our freedoms have been incredibly restricted. Governments are in this place where they actually have the power to impose all of these rules and legislation around us and, and restrictions around us. And, you know, we're now seeing a bit of that pushback, right? Because people have to consent to be governed. Mm -hmm. And, and I found, I don't know about you, Roger, but I found over the past week or two that started to slip. I feel like people were like, you know what, I, I need, I need, I need to get out or the, 
my business is failing. I need to take steps to do something like the, the consent to stay home was starting to slip um, because they were seeing that the ICUs weren't as busy as things, you know, had been predicted to be. And all of that was awesome because we did the work, right? Because you did the work, we got this incredible, or we got this great result and we need to sort of find our way through that. But as we ban, as we look at restrictions and we look at downloading apps onto our phones and we look at giving people, you know, the ability to, uh, uh, trace us and track us and, you know, demand that we wear face masks and demand that we, you know, uh, open our places in, in certain ways, that is, that is big government. And at what point in time though, do we say, but that is the cost of living in the time of COVID, right? Like that is the cost of doing, that is the cost of doing business at this time is accepting um, the role of big government. And, you know, that's something that we've seen more pushback against in the States where you don't have as much of a trust in government as we do here. Um, There, there's also that issue in the States where, People were being offered, what was it that the one senator said, uh, $1,250 should last 10 weeks. Like, there's, there's also a big difference in, in the way that our governments are kind of looking at this saying, we understand that you need this. Yeah, you have to, you have to be able to live. You have to pay people to stay home. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a transaction. Yeah. Right? Like, let's be real. This is transactional. You have to pay people for that. For the, otherwise, they will not do it. Right. And that's something too, because so with both of you having your own businesses, like Roger, how does that affect, how does that affect you? And, and do you think that the restrictions at the time, at this time are still too much? Or do you think that they're kind of just enough? Because again, life is different in the time of COVID. So my personal opinion on the restrictions, I'm, I'm leery of um, starting to reopen as early as we are. Um, I mean, if you think about this from just the perspective of the life cycle of this disease, I mean, you kind of want it to be gone and then wait a little bit before, um, before you, you really say, okay, everybody come on out of their hole. Like, I mean, spring was so late in Alberta this year. I mean, the the groundhog, he stayed, uh, Steve well away from, um, coming out for eight or nine weeks. You know, I think that's sort of an analogy for what needs to be done now. As far as my business, I mean, um, without the courts, uh, there's not a tremendous amount of work that uh, that I can do. I mean, my 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 usual uh, threatening letter, which says, "Oh, we'll take you to court," now says, "Just you wait." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, it certainly affected my business, but um, you know. I mean, lawyers will, will survive. I mean, the, the amount of work that's going to come out of this scenario for uh, the litigation bar and the insolvency bar are, are essentially, the, it's, it's huge. It'll be unprecedented the amount of possible insolvencies that come out of this. And uh, I think Emma's heard me say this before, but I don't think there's, uh, I don't think there's anybody that's, um, you know, in earshot of this podcast that hasn't been on one side of a breach of contract in the last eight weeks. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unprecedented days right now. Yeah. Testing the uh, force majeure rules and uh, clauses is the new favorite game. Those arcane little laws that nobody even mentions in law school or, or, you know, 
talks about in practice, you know, until something crazy happens. Yeah. And, and that is true. We've just seen people try to get out of deals here, there and everywhere. And uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Real estate's a bit, a bit the same. I haven't seen, I've, I've only put together deals that were put together in the midst of the COVID crisis right okay. now. So, uh, they, they have, yeah, their chances of getting out of it are slim to nil. <laughs> right. Okay. They went, yeah. We can say you went in in the middle of this. You knew exactly what you were doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a referral for me, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, and I will say I I agree. I'm very concerned that we are moving too quickly. Um, Like the the whole reopening debate has been going on for a bit, and that did help people too, right? It helped people to. I think have that conversation of when might this be happening? Uh, even if it wasn't a, even if it wasn't an exact when it was a, uh, it was an idea that we were thinking about it. This, this was a possibility. We are, we are starting to pay attention. Um, but one of the things that some, it, it, people were saying things like you first, Who's going to open up? You first. And BC is almost taking that, BC's doing a fantastic job of that, actually, because I think they're the first province that is kind of on the downturn, uh, not including the Atlantic provinces, because they've just had a better time with this overall. Mm-hmm. Um, but BC is literally sitting back going, let's see what happens in other places. And so I do, I do feel like we are... I do feel like we're moving too quickly on it, but I also, I, 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 I dislike saying it, but I'm also looking at it saying, um, I, I don't know, I don't know what the choice is because is it, is it actually going to cause us problems to reopen? I don't know. I mean, look at some of the, some of the states that don't seem to be as affected, Again, I don't even know if I can trust anything coming out of there right now with, with right. Florida being like, yeah, let's just stop reporting. <laughs> okay. So it's, that's a little concerning. Um, but like I, I, this is just, like you said, it's, this is an unprecedented time that we're all kind of watching and waiting to see what happens next. And, and how, how long can you hold everything else back? Yeah. Especially when it comes to the economy. I'm less, I mean, I think I'm, I'm actually pretty pro it was time to get things moving. And I think one of the, you know, for, for several reasons, you know, a, we don't know what the economic, um, the repercussions of locking people in their houses are huge. Uh, we've, had a, you know, giant domestic violence incident that One day. in the murder, you know, lots of people. And then we've got, uh, we know we've got a domestic violence crisis on our hands um, happening behind the scenes that we don't hear about. We know we've got suicides happening. Uh, we know we've got uh, people going out of business. We know you know, the, the, the toll that is mounting is now being mirrored against the, um, you know, the, the death rates in, from COVID. 
but really that death rate from COVID is not just going to be from COVID. It's going to be from all of these other things. And it was time to start, you know, humans are humans and they can only take this kind of a thing for so long. And so we had to do some kind of a controlled open. I think communication around how that is happening and the fact that I don't like the language. And I think somebody pointed it out of necessarily reopening. I think it's just, it's lessening restrictions, right? Right. Um, you know, so we've gone from 100% to sort of a 30%, uh, you know, social interaction now. And I think we can get ourselves from what I've seen of modeling that some physicians have shared to me is, is that we can get ourselves to sort of 60% without having those, um, those models go a bit crazy, right? right. And, and without putting ourselves over the edge. So yes, it is time for that to happen. How that happens, um, is a very delicate balance and that's going to require us to continue have faith and trust in our government and our health officials. And it's going to require like incredible ongoing communication from them. Right. Um, so that's, those are, those are tough things to handle. And especially when you don't, you know, people are, people are trying to get into new habits and they're trying to learn things like the hairdressers are like, fuck, how is it that I'm going to reopen? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, what do I need? Do I need mass? I mean, Yana, right. Tattoo parlor, right. Roger, like how is, how is your wife going to come in here and, and restart her business and employ all the safety measures? I mean, she's pretty good at all that stuff anyway, but like, is she receiving guidance right now on how that could happen? Uh, no, no, she isn't. And I mean, I mean, we went into COVID with a, with a, a very healthy stock of sanitary equipment because her business has, uh, has a high degree of disinfectant use uh, as it is. But I mean, she's had, she's had a number of um, uh, clients reach out and say, hey, you know, can I come in Monday? Can I come in Tuesday? Mm-hmm. And, you know, her response is, well, no, I mean, tattoo parlors are ordered closed. I can't see you. And, you know, you know, so I mean, no, it, it's not clear as to how a barber or a tattoo artist or a massage therapist gets comfortable with the idea of going back. I mean, I received an email from my chiropractic office uh, earlier this week, and they said, look, we're not ready yet. The only thing we're doing now is emergencies. And, um, you know, we'll let you know. So um, yeah, just like the provinces, you know, don't necessarily want to be first. I mean, why does a hairdresser, um, get pushed out the, out the window first to be the, the canary in the coal mine, coal mine, as it were. Yeah. yeah there's individual things that you take into account, right? Like I'm going to go see my hairdresser next week, but my hairdresser, um, is working in a two person shop and she's been quarantined with her partner and, um, I'm her first appointment. <laughs> so that's what I was saying too. Like, I want to be the first one in. <laughs> yeah. So like my, my assessment of that, my risk, you know, so this is just, this is the way we now think about things, right. Is we all just have a different way of, of, of assessing risk. I'm mm-hmm. going to be going to places that offer private shopping experiences as opposed to places that are sort of giant free for alls. Right. Um, and that's going to, I think culturally, um, shift like there's this idea of like are you know i think what they showed in in demonstrated in china too was places open but is the customer ready Mm -hmm. to come back yeah and and in many places the customer is not ready no i I saw a twitter poll um that asked that same question is are you going to go see a non-essential business on the 14th of may and um when i clicked uh, on my answer 
the uh, the results were 81% said no. So, I mean, that's a that's a fairly clear result as far as random on non, non-scientific polling goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's, and it depends on like family situations. And I went through this uh, when the government, so it was, it was March 12th. They closed the schools March 15th. And so March 12th was, uh, or sorry, March 11th, I guess, was the last day of school for half of my kids. Um, the high school ones were like, mom, are you overreacting? <laughs> it was so cute yeah. because they like, they forget that I spend all day looking at this stuff. But so March 11th and, and I was like, just from observation, I'm like, they won't close the schools until there's community spread. And once you have community spread, then we have a problem. And I have, so my mother and grandmother moved in with me last year <clears throat> and both of them are high risk. Well, one because she's 89 and the other one yeah. because she has diabetes. Yeah. So, and she's 65, right? So, uh, so I was looking at, it wasn't just myself, it was my family situation and the schools were fantastic. And, and I had kind of felt like, I mean, I was watching Dr. Dina's, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, we all know her as Dr. Dina, mm-hmm. um, but watching her, her live updates and it was just constant with the comments people asking are you going to close schools are you going to close schools and uh, I was just like you know what I'm done kids aren't going to school because of the situation in my house and I felt I almost felt like people needed to hear that right like this is your choice you're the parent you know what your family situation is like just do it like why are you waiting for the government to tell you that you can do it and so again, with this, do you have faith in the government? If you do, you're more likely to listen to what they're saying. But also, uh, you know, you can take some of those decisions into your own hands, obviously, I guess, with more restrictions, not necessarily the lesser. But, you know, there are still, there is still that, that autonomy, that freedom that people have, whether the government says that, you know, it's time or not. And even, even with that reopen, right. Some businesses may say I'm not ready to go yet and they just, and they, and they won't open. So it's not that it's not that businesses have to, but they can. Well, it's, I mean, what's interesting about that is then when does the government support run out for those things? Right. Because and yeah. then at a certain point in time, they'll be forced to make that decision or stay or not be in business. Right. Yeah. So well, for sure. Have access to sort of these, these things for a period of time. And then at, at some point in time, they say, no, that's it. And then you, you really don't have a choice, right? As we're seeing uh, workers being basically imposed to go back to work in the States, right? With Donald Trump signing the, the these laws saying you, you're not allowed to refuse. It basically, is a, it's a firing offense. Ah. Yeah, for some of the meatpacking plants. Um, so it's, you know, calling it an essential service and things like that. That's the other thing that, you know, this whole experience has demonstrated is that really we are, um, we are completely dependent on a worker class that has little choice in, you know, our essential, our essential workers are really farm, uh, you know, underpaid farm workers and slaughterhouse workers and grocery store clerks and right. uh, the people who, you know, we choose not, we choose not to see. Yeah. Right. 
Um, and now we've, they've been brought to the forefront because they are the people who are now really, you know, the ones getting sick. And what is, what's our take going to be of that moving forward? Like it's very easy for some of us who get to work from home, right. And make the choice of, Oh, I can take my zoom call and uh, do some business from home and I'll shoot you over a contract. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a totally different experience than, um, than people who, you know, have to be out. Yeah. Who have to be out and who don't have a choice. So, and trust, as we talk about trust in government too, I think it's been really, I think having the doctors and the public health officials take the center stage has been incredibly important. Uh, trust in politicians is at an all time low. I don't care who, which politician you're talking about. <laughs> so we need to, we needed to hear from, we needed to hear from the health professionals themselves. And I think their, their sense, I mean, these are, these are not flashy people, right? You don't go into public health because you think it's a sexy. Uh, the celebrity I, status. Celebrity <laughs> status, right? Like these are people who, who uh, are super nerds in, in, in their fields and uh, are now forced onto the center stage. But I think, I think the very nature of that is what's driven the trust. How about you, Roger? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the question again? I was just listening to Emma. That was great. I know, right? I could, I could sit and listen to her too. I thought, you know, maybe Roger wants to talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm past the age of needing to hear my own voice. <laughs> well, and it, it's, this has been, you know, for the most part, I think that Canada has, Canadians in general have reacted better to a lot of these things granted it's it's so multi-layered right it's not just that the government said or the public health officer said that this is what needs to be done it was also that the government's put in place uh as you were saying emma like a reason they they paid people to stay at home mm -hmm. that that had to be part of it yeah and so i mean but it did it it helped right as soon as they as soon as they did that more people were able to stay at home. Yeah, yeah, it was a, I mean, that's part of the social contract, right? Is, is you can't have one side of it without the other. Right. Without, or, or, or you have an authoritarian government like China that locks you, that, you know, locks you in your house and, you know, bolts you in there. And, mm. uh, and, and you don't have a choice, right? And yeah, I saw some of those uh, videos too. So, so, so we're, you know, it's sort of between the US where you've got, you know, no money and orders to stay home, but no sort of plan as to how it is that people are meant to cope. And I completely relate to these people who are not, I'm not sure I relate to the hordes of protesters, but I relate to the people who are like, well, I have to feed my family. I'm not going to go stand at like the food bank line. I need to get out there and do, I need, I have a job. I need to do my job so that I can actually survive and pay my rent and, yeah. uh, and keep things going. And if you're not going to offer me that other side of the equation, why would I do this? Money, yeah. I mean, money, money, money and power are really the two sides of how that's going to play. You either, you either force this by, you know, violence and authoritarianism or you, uh, or you, or you, you know, dole the money out so people comply. And so 
I wonder how I, much it costs to buy back all the guns. <laughs> you have money. Oh, uh, there were grandfather clauses. If you already have one, you get to keep it. You can't resell it. If you're going to sell it, then you need to sell it to the government. Right. Um, these types of restrictions, these types of bans, these types of regulations are just, I think, going back again to that social contract that we have with one another and say, uh, you know, yes, this is something that we need to do or something that's popular to do, but also on the other, on the flip side of that, and this is something that the conservatives kind of have down pat in their argument is that, that legal or sorry, restricting legal gun owners doesn't necessarily bring down the crime rates that much. And one of the reasons it doesn't is because these guns aren't being obtained legally anyways. And Ontario's really got a problem well, with that because of their access to. I think the flip, the flip side to that argument is a legal gun owner is a legal gun owner until he uses it to murder his family. It's true. Right. Um, yeah. so we're all, we're all, we're all law abiding until the day we're not. And, um, and having access. And so from, you know, people who are in, heavily involved in domestic violence uh, cases understand that having a weapon in the home dramatically increases the chance of, 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 of a partner being murdered. Right. Um, and so, you know, and, and legally obtained weapons, like, let's be clear about that. The person who murdered his family uh, yesterday, legally, legally, he was a legally, uh, a, you know, a, Legally registered firearms yeah. owner. Yeah. yeah, and he was a lawyer, a member of the bar association, and a well-respected member of the community. Right? Could he have uh, stabbed his family to death? Maybe. Probably would have taken a little more effort. Maybe his kid would have been able to. His kid that survived maybe might have been able to do something about that. Who mm -hmm. knows? That now we're in a situation where uh, that family is decimated, and everybody's running around talking. about how, you know, law-abiding firearm owners aren't the problem. But yesterday, one was. Yeah. And that's a hard fact to get around. It is. Yeah, and I, I kind of like the way you put that too, that we're all law-abiding until the day we're not. You decide to follow the laws until you decide that you won't anymore. Sure. And for whatever reason that might be. Sorry, Roger? Yeah. No, there's there's the maximum that maxim that uh, that we don't prosecute the evil in men's minds, which basically goes to say that I mean you can dream and scheme um, of murder, but I mean you haven't committed a crime until you've until you've you know enacted upon it. So mm -hmm. in some way, so yeah, I mean you know we we have um, sociopaths in our society. I mean we don't arrest them and put them in jail simply because of their mental state. Um, and that's, you know, that's a balancing of, you know, the freedoms of the individual and, uh, you know, the, the society, the safety of the society as a whole. And I mean, that sort of, sort of brings that whole concept back to this whole COVID-19 and all the restrictions. Um, we've all had restrictions placed upon us lawfully, uh, by the government. Some don't like it, but I mean, there's the Oaks test to uh, to determine whether the government's use of its constitutional powers to infringe on the rights of a person is reasonable or not. 
And you'd have a hard time saying, um, you know, that it wasn't reasonable to be asked to stay at home um, during COVID-19 or, you know, those folks that had the $800 fines in Ontario, or I guess we're doing $1,200 fines here in Alberta for breaching the, uh, the social distancing rules. You know what? That's the law. You know, um, I'm, I'm not um, politically minded that I'm interested in making laws, but I mean, as a, as a practicing lawyer, I'm very interested in um, the interpretation and upholding those laws and for protecting people's people's rights, whichever side of the uh, the coin walks into my office. Mm-hmm. Well, I would just like to thank both of you for joining me today. I think it was, I think it was an interesting conversation on the the rights and governments and <laughs> where we're at. Right? What's going on? Yeah, and and you know, this would have been a completely different conversation had we had it last year. Uh, yeah. Boy, yes. <laughs> the Political R&D Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Political R&D. Mm-hmm.